all of their behaviours, we call it diagnostic overshadowing, have been assigned to their autism. And no one's thought, could there be a vision factor here at play as well? Welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the sixth episode in the series and we are recording on the 7th of August 2023. You can listen to the other five podcasts on the OT website, on Apple or Spotify or from your usual podcast provider. In our sixth episode, we'll be looking at how people with learning disabilities access good quality eye care. My name's Kerry Smith-Jones. I'm the clinical multimedia editor for Optometry Today. I'm also an optometrist in practice. And I'm Ian Beasley, head of education for the AOP, also clinical editor for Optometry Today and a visiting lecturer at Aston University. Now, Kerry, before we introduce our guest for today, I thought we'd Perhaps take the opportunity to showcase some of the CPD that we have live on the OT website at the moment. So, so what's caught your attention? Well, I have a little bit of a bias because I am the clinical multimedia editor, but uh, I would like to give a bit of a plug to the um, next CPD video, which is about uveitis. Uh, We've got Harry Petrushkin, who's representing Moorfields Private Hospital in this instance, and he's trying to convince us that uveitis isn't scary. It was originally a webinar that uh, we filmed for the AOP, um, but it was so good we've turned it into a CPD video. And from my point of view, still on the the theme of scary, I would say, um, is is an, an article written by Professor Bruce Evans, which highlights that keratoconus is a common cause of litigation against optometrists. And Bruce offers his perspective as an expert witness, which demonstrates that since 2020, about a quarter of the inquiries he receives on cases relate to the failure of optometrists to refer patients appropriately. And the piece just gives a really succinct overview of, of what practitioners should be doing with cases of new and progressing keratoconus. So I think that's the shameless plug over for our CPD. And now we can have a chat with our guest today, Lisa Donaldson. The OT Podcast is supported by the Association of Optometrists, who would like to invite optometrist members to pledge their support for the Special Schools Eye Care Service. Children with special educational needs, or SEN, are 28 times more likely to have an eye condition. Before the Special Schools Eye Care Service was launched, a study found that 46% of children with additional needs had never had a sight test, yet close to half of them had a sight problem. With the Special Schools Eye Care Service, children with SEN have access to high-quality eye care in a setting they feel comfortable in, as well as being fitted with glasses by an optical professional who understands their needs. The AOP's campaign, Sight for Sen, celebrates the Special Schools Eye Care Service, which has currently benefited nearly 11,000 children across schools in England. If rolled out more widely, the scheme could change the lives of over 165,000 children attending special schools. Visit www.aop.org.uk slash sightforsen to find out more and get involved with the AOP's campaign. Lisa is an optometrist who has dedicated almost a decade of her career to developing and campaigning for the delivery of a model that ensures children with learning disabilities have access to the eye care and spectacles they require. Lisa graduated from City University of London in 1992, where she's now a visiting lecturer, and completed her pre-reg at Moorfields Eye Hospital. 
Lisa won a Research Excellence Award from the College of Optometrists for her work investigating the provision of eye care in young children attending special schools, which identified possible barriers to access. Today, Lisa is Head of Eye Care and Vision at Seeability, and we sit down with Lisa as she prepares to mark 10 years with the charity next month. And I thought it'd be really nice if we started with just a summary of your, your journey, really, from back in 1992 when you finished at, at City and then embarked upon your pre-reg up until present day. My pre-reg was in hospital. I was at Moorfields and I also had an aunt who lived at home when I was very young who was blind and I never really understood why and I still hadn't got to the bottom of why having finished my undergraduate optometry degree. So my aunt had cerebral visual impairment and I started to learn a little bit about that in the hospital setting, talking to ophthalmologists and things, but it's still something that tends to fall through the gaps between ophthalmology and neurology. And obviously optometry doesn't, we, we didn't really learn about it at undergraduate level very much at all. And yet we now know that one child in every classroom will have some degree of CVI. Um, and in our special school population, that's maybe 30 to 40% of all the children. So I guess that was... I was fascinated with that to begin with, so I was always very interested in understanding how people perceive the world. I think my favourite lectures at uni were Dave Thompson. The visual perception lectures were a highlight, and I think I sort of understood that that was kind of related to the whole perception thing and, and understanding the psychology of vision. But then equally, as I started to do clinical work myself in the hospital, I was drawn towards the paediatric clinics and... I think naively at that point, I assumed that everyone we were seeing in those hospital clinics was everyone who needed to be seen. And I did some really interesting work back then with the consultant Jill Adams and a colleague Merrick Karash, setting up community orthoptic optom DO clinics with the consultant sort of at the end of the phone, but we were seeing children in community health centres for there and there's still those hospital those clinics still run out of Moorfields now in various different communities but that was really interesting and I've published my first paper on the clinical data that came out of those services and really how interested then as well in how to make sure we're picking children up because what I learned from those clinics and subsequently working in a community opticians was that there's lots of children out there who we're not picking up and so then, as I was starting to do a bit of hospital and a bit of community, my hospital clinics were definitely, I was kind of drawn to doing the paediatrics and the low vision patients. And in the community, I was fortunate enough to join an independent, which had quite a strong reputation. Margaret Packman, who, whose practice it was, already saw quite a lot of patients with learning disabilities. We were sort of locally known for that and I started to take on some of her patients for that as well but I also started at the same time I joined the LOC and I was interested in what was happening to the children who failed screening because I was hearing anecdotes I'd see children sometimes sort of eight or nine year olds who failed their vision screen but hadn't quite had anything followed through and then it turned out you know they were then eight or nine years old and had gone for the first four years of education with sometimes quite a massive spectacle prescription not having been given because the parents either were worried something I heard quite a lot was 
if I go to the opticians, maybe my child wouldn't be able to cooperate with the test because they weren't very good on their letters, or maybe my child will be given glasses they don't need if a child... You know, there's, there's some resistance there from parents. So some of the research work I did again next was with Ahala Subramanian and um, Miriam Conway at City University, and we got some college IPRO funding to do some surveys of parents' understanding of vision screening. And first of all, there's a misunderstanding that it's a full eye test, um, and there's been some good work published otherwise. The evidence is that actually, even if you pass screening, you may have significant hyperopia, you may have convergence insufficiency. So Catherine Saunders and her team have evidence that screening doesn't pick everything up. But it also made me realise that we needed... If children were failing screening, they often weren't going on, as we were suspecting. So part of my work with the LOC, we set up a paediatric post-screening pathway, and that's now one of the LOCSU pathways. During all of that, I was doing visiting clinics and some lectures at City on the undergraduate and also on the paediatric module of the postgraduate, the master's course. I did quite a lot of the third-year clinics at City and then really enjoyed my time doing the paediatric clinics for the third years at City. I also spent some time doing sort of summer holiday clinics. And again, at that point, we had a colorimeter and children were coming in for colorimetry assessment, often again at the age of eight or nine, where they'd already sometimes been diagnosed as dyslexic, but hadn't actually had an eye test. And often you'd find that they had, you know, three dark sills or they were plus five. So it kind of all, all drew together, but I yeah, have worked in various different settings. And then I was fortunate enough in 2013 to be approached by Seeability when they were starting wanting to get a body of evidence. So as an organisation, Seeability have worked in the public health arena for people with learning disabilities to highlight the need for good eye care for this population. We know that people with learning disabilities are... 10 times more likely to have a problem with their eyes and yet much less likely to access eye care. And we'd been doing, as an organisation prior to my joining, a lot of work around that. And 2013, the organisation decided to get strong evidence and that was where I was lucky enough to get involved. And we set up a clinic. It was myself and Marit Karash started in September 2013. We started going to Pasade School in Merton, which was one of our very first, gradually built up to seven schools and in 2019 published our data from that which was for just under a thousand children. From that data we showed that over 40% of the children had never had any eye care and that was an average age across the population of 11. Only 10% had ever been to a high street practice. So where the children were getting eye care it was in the hospital setting. So the history that was there was about 44% had been to hospital clinic. And yet half of the children have a problem. Between 30 and 40% need glasses. 20 to 30% we suspect have some degree of visual processing difficulties. So massive amount of need and all too frequently unmet. So um, simultaneous to all of that work around the getting our data published, we also brought a group together to publish a framework paper of what eye care this population of children ideally should receive. That was um, published as the framework for special schools eye care. And then we went with that framework paper and with the data 
to NHS England. And there's other data too. There's really great work that Maggie Woodhouse and her team have done in Wales, Catherine Saunders that I mentioned already in Northern Ireland, and Rachel Killing's work in Bradford. And what was really great about Rachel's team's work was it showed that where the children were getting prescribed glasses, only 20 to 30% of them were wearing them. So that was why when we started, we wanted to do the glasses bit as well. And we realised that the spectacle dispensing was key. You know, you can do the best tests in the world, but if you're not following through with the glasses, all of those barriers to the high street are still there to getting a good pair of glasses and to being supported to wear them. So, um, yeah, well that, that framework and the, the data we took to NHS England and I've got um, I work with a fantastic policy lead, Donna O'Brien at Seability, who helped us to get heard with that and obviously back in 2019 there was a commitment in the long-term plan to roll services out and NHS England set up a working group and a service was commissioned from April 21 and then we had a bit of a hiccup um, and that rollout was stopped and there was a lot of uncertainty but in June this year we've delighted to hear an announcement that the school service will be provided across the country to that framework model. So things that are looking back on track, although it's a generation of children later, which is, is really sad, but that's how long it takes to um, to sometimes... And we're still not there because the service isn't in all the schools. So, you know, that's when we can, you know, relax a little bit more when we know that that is happening everywhere. And do you see that service that's now being rolled out? Do you think the funding for that model is, is secure or do you think you'll have to continuously look for, for support to get that service funded on a continuous basis? The announcement that was made in June is that there'll be 10 million of funding behind it. We're not sure what that 10 million will be for yet. We do have an assurance that it will be offered everywhere. At the moment, the contracts that all of the existing providers have are um, an amended GOS contract. We're now using the GOS voucher system for prescribing the glasses in the schools as well. So we're hopeful that some of it is coming out of GOS, but the challenges that lie ahead still are how will we ensure that it is available in every school and that every child in every school is is offered the service if they need it so yeah I have no doubt there aren't still some challenges ahead before every child is getting it but there's that commitment now again from the Department for Health and NHS England which is very exciting. Kerry and I have worked in in community practice when we're seeing children that may not be in special schools but have particular needs I can't speak for Kerry, but I know that, that I've always found it to be a challenge, particularly with GOS. You know, you've, you've got the time mm. issues, you've got Mrs. Jones dilating in reception, you've got some visual fields to look at, you haven't been to the loo for two hours, there's algae forming on the cup of your tea. And then you've, you've got a child that you're trying to coax into your chair and, and really think on your feet about how to, how to examine that child. Um, in, in that sort of scenario. So are there any tips that you can share with us about how, how do you approach that exa- examination? Should we be adapting the the test and the environment? Kerry, I don't know whether that, that mirrors how you feel in practice. <laughs> yeah, well, you said thinking on your feet, but actually I was lying on the floor trying to do retinoscopy on a child last week who was kind of lying across the threshold of the door of the test room. <laughs> sort of rolling out into the corridor and then sort of coming back in again and um yeah it took 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 a while to get her into the chair but I, you know it it is it is an absolute challenge and I I was fortunate in that the the patient 
before it cancelled and she turned up early in an attempt to acclimatise her to the environment before she went in. So we had we had a bit more time than we'd planned with this child, but she, she um, you know, she didn't didn't want to do all the all the things and let me fill in all the tick boxes on my rec- record card as, as you would and you know I think I saw her optic disc flash past at one point and it, it kind of looked okay so yeah so I'd, I'd, I'd value your advice on on that sort of thing I mean you can't do everything in the order you were taught in your pre-reg and you can't fill in all the boxes perfectly but you know it's I, I try and focus on what I can do for that child maybe as opposed to what I can't but uh, yeah what are your tips yeah, well, I think that's a really good point, Kerry, about not being able to follow things in your prescribed order. And I think, you know, in some ways it has to be acknowledged that it's not for everyone. And there's some clinicians who it just doesn't fit with their way of practicing. And I, in a way, I think GOSS is a challenge for that because there's a, you know, there has historically been a need to meet the requirements of your GOSS contract. You have to see everybody. I mean, there's a couple of points I wanted to make in answer to that. The first is, it's really hard to see a child like that successfully within the GOSS contract. And so something else we've been working on at Seeability is a LOCSU Community Learning Disability Eye Care Pathway, or to make it a bit more accessible for people with learning disabilities, we call it the Easy Eye Care Pathway. And that means that for an additional fee, you are able to spend a bit more time to perhaps book a double appointment or to bring someone back and split an appointment up into, you know, small manageable chunks. You can provide acclimatisation visits. Really, really important to come in and meet with clinic front of house staff before the appointment, like you mentioned, Kerry, and get acclimatised. We also have paperwork that goes with that pathway that's pre and post so that someone, one of the challenges with someone with a learning disability often those first few moments that you have, you want to be absolutely engaged with them and understanding what their functional abilities are and observing them. And what you don't want to be doing is cross-examining them and or their carer and getting them really stressed because there's so many questions for you to fill out your history and symptoms box. So if you can have that covered beforehand by getting them to sit down at home with a carer or supporter and fill that out so that you know all of that before you meet them, you can be really present in those important few moments. Like you say, I'm ready to start doing retinoscopy rolling around in the <laughs> in the reception area. And that's really important. And, and at the other end of the test... What we find, again, as well, is just to have that written report that in plain English explains someone's vision. So I think you can do a fantastic test and be really pleased with yourself because, you you know, you did manage to check motility and you managed to do a confrontation fields and you managed to pick up. But if you haven't communicated those findings effectively, then that's not going to improve that person's quality of life. And that's what I'm always thinking about is how can I provide information after the test that's going to improve someone's quality of life and in the case of the children their education so we're really keen to get information into education and healthcare plans for all the children so that everyone working with them knows what they can see so to give you a practical example of that we meet teenagers who have total hemianopias or sometimes superior inferior hemianopias that no one is aware of who's working with them now. Now, it may be that somewhere written down on a hospital report, it has said this child has a total upper hemianopia, but no one's translated that to mean they can't see anything in the top half of their vision. So you need to do X, Y and Z. So to give you, again, a really practical example of that, a young man who I met in school not so long ago, 
really anxious about moving around the school, really nervous with his footing. His mobility wasn't great. His mobility plan was for him to have someone on either side and helping him to lift his head up so he could see where he was going. When we saw him, we realised that he had a total inferior hemianopia. So what he needed to do was to put his chin right down and look at the floor and not have people trying to help him to stand up to look where he was going. So with the very best of intentions, his mobility plan was disabling him further. And once everyone understood what he could and couldn't see and that he needed to put his chin down, he improved massively. And it's it's really similar with a lot of the children we see who are, for example, undiagnosed myopes, you know, perhaps minus seven or minus eight, and they're not wearing the glasses. And all of their behaviours, their lack of eye contact, their lack of engagement with peers and teachers is put down to their autism. And no one has realised. And sometimes those children have been seen in hospital when they were four or five and they've got lost to follow up and they've got more myopic as they've grown. And all of their behaviours, we call it diagnostic overshadowing, have been assigned to their autism. And no one's thought, could there be a vision factor here at play as well so again I've seen children with mobility plans to try and help them to gain independence and no one's mentioned that that they have the head and eye test do they need glasses and of course your mobility is going to be hugely negatively impacted upon if you're if you can't see for a minus eight prescription so yeah so the community that I've I've digressed into reporting but that's part of the community pathway as well as the school's pathway is for every child every patient that's seen we write something in plain english because again we know in social care people who support us change people's care changes and information about that person's vision gets lost so if you can write a brief report and just say this person needs glasses for distance they can't see beyond 20 centimeters without them you write across it please make sure this goes into the health and care plan then that information goes with them about that person and that's so important for their well-being but going back to your original question it is very much as well having that time and that presence and so doing your history beforehand if you can and also something i've learned from school as well is things about behavior and if someone starts to get stressed you've got to move on quickly and you've got to change what you're doing one of my mistakes i always used to make was i'd have my retinophthalmoscope charging on the edge of the desk and a child would come charging in and the first interaction would be oh no don't touch that so now i'll always have a stereo test a 10 base out prism, some Bradford box functional vision assessment equipment on the edge of the desk so that a child, if they come running in and starts fiddling with things, they fiddle with things that you want them to. So you're already observing their interaction with those testing tools. And that you know, then you can say, oh, do you want to put it to my eye and I'll put it to yours? So I think that's really important to get off on the right foot. And then probably another really significant thing is to explain and or demonstrate absolutely everything first so if you've got a supporter or a parent or teaching assistant in the room whatever you're going to do do it to them first so if you're going to shine your ret light do it to mum and show her that it's not scary and hold the lens up to mum and mum can go oh that's interesting and then you can move over so yeah not creating any surprises because once you lose trust and someone becomes anxious it's really hard to to get back and I talk to lots of adults as well now who um sometimes the trauma of being pinned down in a hospital clinic to have drops and to be refracted has meant that they haven't had their eyes looked at 
for decades sometimes. So, yeah. And then, sorry, one other thing that's really important is checking accommodation on everyone because it's probably not the only one thing. But, yeah, we know in our school population that at least 40% have accommodative insufficiency. So we know in Down syndrome it's maybe 70 to 80% of people have accommodative insufficiency. In cerebral palsy it's around 30 to 40%. And less good evidence, but there's some evidence in autism as well that you're likely to have poor accommodation. So really important to check that as well. And if needs be, have reading or close-up prescriptions. And trying not to call it a reading prescription, calling it a near prescription so that Something I experience often is people will say, well, he doesn't need reading glasses because he doesn't read. And it's like, well, does he eat? <laughs> does he do puzzles? Does he? So, yeah, I try to call it a near prescription. Mm, that's a good point. Um, can, I, um, can I get you to elaborate a little bit on two things there? So one, you mentioned the Bradford box. Um, and anyone who's not seen one was going to want to know what is in a Bradford box. And the other thing was the um, checking accommodation. How do you go about doing that on a child with special educational needs? Do you have any special techniques? The Bradford Visual Function Box is a clinically validated tool that was developed by Rachel Pilling and the team at Bradford Royal Infirmary. It really was developed as an antidote to those notes you saw where it says no vision possible and you're sort of left looking, has this child got no functional vision or were we unable to complete the tests? Or you might see fixes and follows a small toy or a large toy. So the Bradford box is a series of different size balls and beads and some black and white targets so that you can quantify functional vision. So, for example, you may be able to say that a child can fix and follow a 20 millimetre bead right down to a, a 5 mil bead. And that means you can check for repeatability. It's also a really nice way of in a report or to a parent being able to quantify, qualify the level of vision. It's real world, you know, it's, it's more understandable than 0.0 as well in some ways. So if you can explain that to a parent that they can find and follow with their eyes a bead of this size, that's what the Bradford Visual Function Box is. In terms of assessing accommodation, there is the Ulster Cardiff Accommodation Cube, which is a bit like the RAF rule for measuring accommodation. It's an internally illuminated target on a rule. That's, you know, if, if you're starting out with this and you want to do it very empirically, that's the gold standard. The other thing I'd recommend is there's a, a visual fixation system which Simon Berry has developed. It allows you to put a mobile phone inside a box, basically, so that you can have the child on axis and look to see if they're accommodating onto the target of the mobile phone screen. The other way of doing it is just simply to look with the distance correction in place, have the child fixing on an, a near target. If they're fixing on the target and you're getting a with movement, either adjusting your distance for the dioptric equivalent or holding up plus lenses until you get reversal. And then you're measuring the accommodative lag. And if the lag is within a diopter, that's deemed acceptable clinically. If it's more than that, then they probably need some plus to be able to maintain focus comfortably at near. I think the other thing that is important to consider as well as measuring the lag is the ability to maintain accommodation. So on all of our record cards, we will record whether accommodation is accurate and sustained. So you may see that they can hold their accommodation briefly and you get a nice reversal movement in the plane of your fixation target. 
but then they lose it and it becomes a with movement again. So they're really straining to hold fixation. I hope that explained it reasonably well. It's quite hard without demonstrating <laughs> just verbally. Elisa, you, you talked earlier about um, how you can get um, patients with support to uh, complete history and symptoms ahead of the examination. And, and I know mm. that seeability have a whole range of, of resources to, to help make that, that process easier with a, a about my eyes downloadable document and some of the documents that help you to fill in a report afterwards and, and even functional visual assessment tools for for use by carers and supporters and on on that latter point do you find that that carers are quite good at completing those those functional assessments yes they can be if they know about them in advance and if we find yeah again so with the easy eye care pathway the requirement to provide that pathway and at the moment it's commissioned across the northwest and will be live in southeast london in august and it is a requirement to to use those forms and it is really helpful to have it filled out. The other thing, doing a functional assessment or as a minimum, as you say, the about my eyes form, is that it means that people come to you having thought about the test. So again, to give a practical example, if I see a parent with their child and I'll, they'll say, oh yeah, no, he he recognises me when I come in the room, but I'll then say, but do you call his name when you come in the room? They sort of stop and say, oh gosh, maybe I do. Oh yes. And so then I have to send them away to go and, and try coming in the room and waving and seeing what distance. Whereas if you've looked at that paperwork beforehand, you already answer those questions and say, yes, he does respond visually and engage visually without any auditory cues. So yeah, the, the forms are really, I think it helps to focus both the person and their carers on what behaviours might be visual in origin um, before they come? So if people have taken the time and if, and that's really something that, you know, your reception team often can support with just to either send someone a link or, or print off a copy. When someone makes their appointment, it can just mean that they come really having, having the potential visual concerns better articulated so that you're better able to support them in meeting their needs. And it, it just makes it less stressful generally for the person because they've also, part of that form, it's got some photos on and it's it asks some questions, you know, are you able to match pictures or are you able to name letters so that you you know to pitch things at the right level so you're not going to cause someone stress by trying to get them to read letters when you should really know that they, they can't. So, yeah, it helps you both to kind of meet in the right place. Um, and as I said before, having the report really ensures that if there are changes in carers and if there are you know and for a child who's going to school and maybe changing schools that that information about their vision needs and abilities goes with them like other healthcare needs should do and gets flagged i mean the other thing we have on our, our website as well is a whole sort of suite of easy read resources on different eye conditions so if you have somebody with a learning disability who has a cataract for example or who has been diagnosed with glaucoma and is struggling to understand it or struggling to know how to put drops in we've worked on lots of different leaflets that people can download from our website so that's all readily available and hopefully you know useful to people's day-to-day practice but I think I acknowledge that as you said Kerry it can be quite time consuming and that's why we're really keen for 
alongside a school service to have these community easy eye care LOXU pathways commissioned so that practitioners are able to to meet people's needs because it is really hard to do that within a GOSS contract and we acknowledge that. And if you are an optometrist in community and you you want to get involved in this, um, what, what does it involve? Is there any training um, and where does all the equipment come from and do you need to supply it yourself or is that something that's provided and how do you get started? So with the Easy Eye Care Pathway, um, again in the North West, contact your LOC, um, same in South East London where the pathway is already established. Where it isn't yet established, again, contact your LOC, try and get interest in getting it commissioned. Also, please get in touch with us. We have eye care champions at Seeability who are people we employ who have lived experience of learning disability and in some cases sight loss as well. Their role started around raising awareness amongst their peers of the need for eye care. It's evolved a little bit to become experts by experience. So what we've found is they're really effective in flagging the issues to commissioners and to LOCs and to optometrists and to sort of raise awareness. So so our champions are really keen to support where they can. If there's, you know, a local interest in getting a surface set up, do get in touch with us and our eye care champions would, would love to support that as well. Um, for the easy eye care pathway, the training requirement is the LOXU learning disability modules. So they're five WOPEC modules, which is all available again. And even if you haven't got a pathway in your area, you can get the codes from ourselves. So just again, if you're interested in doing those WOPEC modules, get in touch with us or with your LOC um, and that anyone can complete them. There's also some great docket modules on learning disability as well to provide the easy eye care LOXU pathway the WOPEC modules are a prerequisite. For the special schools at the moment, with the new, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. What we do know is Seeability work with City University to provide a training module, which is a 15-point academic module, which we hope there will be some funding from ICSs to support people to complete. But that module is very much a mentor programme. So the, the bedrock of that, again, is to do the docket and the WOPEC training. And there's a couple of lectures but the main part of it is shadowing an existing special school service and having a clinical mentor and an academic supervisor so that the one of the most important things with the special schools is to go out and spend a day with someone who's already doing it and learn from that clinical mentor so that's the way that the the city university module's been developed and that was what people were doing for the first round of recruitment for the special schools eye care service for the NHS so we're hopeful that will continue as things start to get rolled out again. And do you see the the rollout happening fairly quickly in other parts of the country or is, is that dependent upon funding, enthusiasm in, in the local area, enthusiasm from individual practitioners or all of the above? I think a bit of all of the above it's really hard to know what's going to how it's going to pan out in terms of commissioning arrangements. We don't understand that fully yet. One of the reasons it stalled the first rollout was, so we were, we were in roughly 10% of the special schools population was receiving the service or is receiving the service to date. That was commissioned centrally through NHS England and obviously with GOSS budgets being devolved to ICSs, we see that this is going to be a service that will be commissioned on an ICS level. One of the things that was really heartening in the first 
round of recruitment was how many clinicians came forward to do this. So we had hospital trusts, but we also had a really surprising number of individual optoms and DOs who came forward and took on a GOS contract to do a day or two a week in a school. To be honest, one of my personal concerns was that we might not have an interested enough workforce, but that really wasn't the case. There was more than enough expressions of interest. I think the big unknown at the moment is who is going to put out those expressions of interest this time and how it's going to be done because it was done from a central dedicated program team at NHS England from April 21 and we're in a it's going because it's potentially going to be on ICS level whether there's going to be the capacity within the ICSs to put out for expressions of interest and how the schools are going to be recruited without that central focused team. So you know when you have you have rolled this out and you've got trained practitioners with lots of good equipment in accessible places ready to do this. How do you actually reach the patients? Where do you get them from? If, if we know that they tend not to present for eye tests because their carers assume that they're not looking at you because of a disability as opposed to them not being able to see, how do we get to those people? Not the ones that are in special schools, but the ones living in community. Yeah, that again is a really, really good question. And it's a massive challenge, which is something, again, our eye care champions are working to address. So they they were doing a really good job of that just before COVID. And we started when we employed the champions originally. Um, What we were finding was when they were encouraging people to get eye tests, unfortunately, they were hitting a wall in that they were being told, we can't test you or it was it was too difficult or maybe getting referred, which is why we started to shift our focus towards trying to get more easy eye care pathways commissioned so that we've got more accessible services in place. But you're quite right, Kerry. Now we've got to focus again and get our champions out there again. And within communities, making sure that people with learning disabilities are accessing. One of the key things we're looking at is everybody with a learning disability has the right to an annual health check with their GP. There's been a big push towards ensuring everyone gets them and GPs are now giving annual health checks. The target has been to give them to 75% of the learning disabled population and that's been quite an effort in general practice. So we really want to ride on the coattails of that rather than having to totally separately talk about eye care. What we'd love to see is the annual health check referring people into the easy eye care pathway so that if you're going to get your cardiovascular checks and your checks on everything else rather than just having a question to say are you seeing okay and yeah I think you're seeing okay you actually say okay you need to go along to your easy eye care appointment every year because you're much more at risk of having a problem. One of the things we would love to see as an organisation is just to get that public health message out there as well is that people with a learning disability should be on the list of vulnerable groups who are entitled to a sight test for free on the NHS as standard. And also we would love for people with learning disabilities to be added to the people with um, who are registered as sight impaired and children as people who need to see a dispensing optician. Because as I've alluded to before, one of the real challenges for people with learning disabilities is getting a well-fitting pair of glasses that they're supported to wear. So if you imagine people with learning disabilities very often have much higher prescriptions, often because they were premature or because they have Down syndrome or other reasons that give them high prescriptions. Those prescriptions are often issued much later in life. And on top of that, they have 
potentially issues with processing information, which makes it harder to adapt to change in their visual world. And they may also have sensory issues with having something on their face and head. So all of those things conspire to make adapting to glasses really difficult for this population of people. So sadly, I still come across peers who will say to me, oh, well, I don't really bother too much with prescribing for people with learning disabilities because they never get used to wearing glasses anyway. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but I have heard that, you know, in, in recent times. And that should absolutely not be a reason to give up on someone being able to see well. It can be a struggle, but it's so absolutely worth it. And, you know, to give you... I've had parents say to me, my child is so much less autistic now. And I know that's not clinically correct, but that's their perception. Because now they can see, they can engage, they can develop socially, behaviourally. And if we don't support people to wear those glasses that they need, then we're disabling them further. So we really owe it as a, a sector and as professions. And that's why I'm really passionate about the, the role of the dispensing optician in both the special schools and the easy eye care pathway. It's really important to have that commitment to a proactive. So all of our DOs in our special school services see the children who wear the glasses in their school as their caseload. And they don't just fit the glasses and then wait for them to come back if they break. They actually put them down for a three month dispensing follow up. And actually, I think it's a great model because having worked in the hospital where we used to bring people back for a three month vision check and then they came in for a wasted appointment because they weren't wearing the glasses. It's the DO who's seeing them and making sure that they are or they aren't wearing the glasses. And if they're not wearing the glasses, what can we do to get them to wear them? Do we need to rethink the fit? Do we need to talk to the class? One of the favourite things we do is say you've got a child who's a four dioptor myope and the class aren't remembering to put their glasses on up just put some plus fours in a trial frame and politely show the teacher this is what it's like. And that can often, you know, really make, that can be a turning point for them. They'll be like, oh my goodness, we won't. And you'll see that child the next week, they're fighting with them to put the glasses on in the, in the assembly or whatever when you walk past. So, and that's what's so lovely actually about being in school because for these children and families, vision isn't always the top of the list. There's so many life or death things. There's so many life or death appointments to get to. You know, you've got your appointment for the wheelchair clinic. You've got your appointment for the the epilepsy clinic and the feeding clinic. And the, you're going to the paediatrician and to the neurologist. And, you know, they've got so many things to deal with and absolutely no judgment on the families. This is another thing. And if you one of the wonderful things about the special schools is it's a one stop shop and a community eye care pathway can be as well. Having worked in the hospital where we do a great workup and get you know, be really pleased with our prescription. Often you'd then be just sending them off to the high street to get that prescription made up into a pair of glasses and there's that disconnect. So being able to do the whole thing in your practice or in the school means that you're really rounding the circle. You know, too often, going right back to the, the research I think I mentioned from Rachel Pilling in Bradford where was, I think it was somewhere between 20 and 30% of the children who prescribed glasses were actually wearing them. We want to see that going right up into 80, 90%. And the only way you can really do that is with really, really good dispensing and actively following up on everyone who's been prescribed glasses with the DO. And Lisa, in, t in terms of the DOs, do they follow the same pathway as the optometrists for the, for the easy eye care? 
Um, is it the same modules or is there a separate strand of training that they, that they undertake? The DOs can do the, exactly the same WOPEC modules. And for the schools, they can do the city module in exactly the same way. ABDO have also developed some training as well with some model heads that's available. And yeah, we'll wait to see how it all pans out in terms of what's going to be a, a mandate for the to be providing in the schools. But certainly, yeah, we're really keen that they um, those modules are accessible for both optoms and DOs outside of government funding for for this type of service do you feel that industry has a role to play are they already playing a role in in supporting the delivery of of eye care in the way that you'd like or is there more that they could be doing i think it would be wonderful if the multiples took up the pathway and were able to promote it obviously if if we had an uptake of the pathway from some of the bigger providers it would give it a lot of really good public health messaging as well and that that would be really welcome because at the moment it is a bit of a postcode lottery and it's hard for us as an organization we've had a for many years we've had an online database of learning disability friendly practices and sadly in recent years we've found increasingly practices finding they need to ask to be taken off and that's really just because it's a bit of a snowball if you become the only practice in your area that has a reputation for being able to see people with a learning disability. It's not a viable business model without the Easy Eye Care pathway being commissioned. So that's why we're really passionate about that getting set up more. And I think, yeah, support from the sector would be really welcome. And I have to say as well that in terms of NHS England's working group and the recent meetings we've had with Minister O'Brien and the Department for Health and NHS England on the rollout recommencing for the special schools. We've had overwhelming support from the sector, from the AOP and the college, ABDO, the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. All of the bodies who signed up to the framework paper are really supportive of the model that's moving forward. And there's it's very heartening the, the degree of sort of cross-sector collaboration and agreement to try and get the best eye care for the school's population and I think we can we can hope for something similar in the community for like you say children who don't attend a special school and, and for adults as well. Well I think it's for us to say congratulations for all the work that you've put in and how far you've come and yeah, there's still some way to go obviously but it's uh, it's fantastic the progress that you've made in the last few years it's wonderful. Well thank you well it's definitely been a team effort and I've been very lucky to be at Seability and to have Seability supporting the, the work. And, and like I say, across the sector, there's been a great deal of support for making this happen and for moving things forward and, and yeah, cross-sector agreement, which is really, really heartening and exciting. Lisa, I think that's um, the perfect place to, to round things up today. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. Uh, and we, we look forward to, to receiving updates on, on continued progress. Thank you both very much as well for your time and for inviting me. The OT Podcast is supported by the Association of Optometrists, who would like to invite optometrist members to pledge their support for the Special Schools Eye Care Service. Children with special educational needs, or SEN, are 28 times more likely to have an eye condition. Before the special school's eye care service was launched, a study found that 46% of children with additional needs had never had a sight test, yet close to half of them had a sight problem. 
With the special school's eye care service, children with SEN have access to high-quality eye care in a setting they feel comfortable in, as well as being fitted with glasses by an optical professional who understands their needs. The AOP's campaign, Sight for Sen, celebrates the special school's eye care service, which has currently benefited nearly 11,000 children across schools in England. If rolled out more widely, the scheme could change the lives of over 165,000 children attending special schools. Visit www.aop.org.uk slash Sight for Sen to find out more and get involved with the AOP's campaign.